This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. When I was in the period of fantasizing about this restaurant and imagining everything it could be, the joy of creating it is so separate from the recognition you receive. Definitely did not expect it to go this well. And I'm just so delighted that people have responded to it and it struck a chord. I am so excited to have Claire DeBoer on One Woman Kitchen today. She's a rising star chef, one of the most acclaimed young women cooking in restaurants today, and a beautiful writer. Claire, of course, is the fabulous chef and owner with two partners, Jess Shadbold and Annie Shi of the great restaurant King in New York City. She's pregnant. She's actually due soon. And it's so wonderful to talk to her about nourishment, about her career path, and what it means to become a mother. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves, each of us in our own way is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Claire, it is such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to meet you. I love your food. I've been to your restaurant twice, King, and I had the most wonderful time reading a very special article that you wrote in the New York Times. Um, I believe it was three full pages. And not only do I now know that you're a beautiful cook, but you're also a beautiful writer. So welcome. And I know we have so much to, to talk about. I understand that your background is so interesting, really varied, that your mother is British, your father is Dutch. You grew up in London, but also in India and the Middle East. So I'll want to hear about how some of those ingredients and flavors and mm. tastes may or may not be part of your, your current menu. But Claire, so again, welcome. Uh, how did you get started? How did you become a chef? Thank you. I'm and a famous to be one. Here. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Um, how did I get started? Well, I, I think... So, you know, I, I grew up, um, I was in England until I was four, and then we moved as a family to India. And I think that my family life has always revolved around the kitchen. Uh, my grandmother was a phenomenal cook. My grandfather was a farmer. So, you know, for the first few years of my life, I was, you know, always sitting on my grandmother's windowsill, helping mm -hmm. her weigh the scones and make the chicken soup. And we used to pick the berries every summer and make the jam together. So the 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 rhythms of the kitchen very much dictated um my life as a little girl. Um, and then we moved to India and my world blew up in <laughs> culinarily. I remember the first, the first few weeks we, uh, we lived there. It was all, uh, we had to, we were staying in some kind of Marriott or something and it was all, uh, you know, room service delivery of burgers. And we were like, this is mm. terrible. <laughs> um, and you know, I think, I think Indian, Indian cuisine became the norm, um, throughout my childhood that was what we ate most days of the week um and I absolutely love it um 
Is there an outstanding dish you're thinking of? I mean, I particularly like um, South Indian food, but to be honest, my my ultimate comfort food is basmati rice um, with mm. yellow dal and chapatis. Mm. Um, it's kind of the so with lentils and yeah, flat it's bread, like it's like the, it's like the mac and cheese. So <laughs> <laughs> it's what I want when I'm sick. It's what I went what I want when I've been away from home for a long time. Um, it's you know, it's chicken soup. Well, that's very interesting. So if you have any of those tastes or flavors right now, and the fact that you are pregnant, um, is this kind of a taste sensation you're looking for? Or do you have any connection to that? Your childhood taste and now? Oh, totally. Totally. I, I still I still want dal and rotis all the time. Um, <laughs> but pre- not really a craving, you said. We started talking about yeah, cravings no, I said I'm, I'm, I'm nine months pregnant at the moment. Um, and you, you were asking before we came on air what my cravings have been. At the very beginning of my pregnancy, everyone talked about like, you know, all my friends were like, are you licking the road yet to get some extra, you know, whatever. All these really weird things. Um, Claire, what did you just say? Licking the road. Like, <laughs> apparently it's a very mean? common, um, a very common craving is for something that's in the tarmac. Um, and so a lot of women get a craving to lick the road, which is, you know, <laughs> needless to say, probably be a more interesting story if I had said, yeah, and that's, you know, that's, that was my craving, but no. Fascinating. Um, I realized I was pregnant actually because of how I was relating to food. Um, I realized almost immediately I knew I was cooking Sunday lunch at home. um, And I normally eat loads of leafy greens and salads and fresh vegetables. And this is where the we come back to the Indian flavors and comfort. But I I was having people over and I was making uh, the menu that I all of a sudden I looked at what I was cooking. And I was like, this is something's up. Something's up. I had poached a whole chicken in turmeric um, and ginger broth mm. with chickpeas, potatoes, and rice all in there at the same time. And I was making chapatis to go with it. And I, oh, and my I, goodness. and I was looking at this and I was like, ah. And then I was making a, um, uh, a, a coriander, cilantro, and um, trevise uh, salad. Um, and I didn't want to touch the head of lettuce. And mm. it was this really, you know, normally I'm, I'm got my hands all over raw chickens and n- nothing nothing really phases me in the kitchen Hmm. um but I didn't want to I didn't even want to handle the vegetable um and okay this is so fascinating Clara (laughs) this connection between your comfort foods and memory and taste and instinctively and unconsciously that you needed to recreate it at this moment in time and then you realized you were pregnant Incredible. I think there really is a scientific article to be to be explored <laughs> about this because the whole field of neurogastronomy is actually yeah. very, um, very important right now. And, um, you know, where our taste receptors yeah. are. And that's fascinating. I mean, people talk about sort of being in tune with their bodies um, and noticing, for, you know, if you do yoga, you probably notice that you're pregnant because of some muscle or something, something physical. And as as a chef and a cook, you know, that's what I do all day and every day. I think it was no surprise that I realized I was pregnant because I was relating to something in the kitchen differently. Yes. Um, so you haven't washed a leafy green in the last nine months? <laughs> well, you know, I basically stopped eating salad. It's crazy. For the first, so the first, my first trimester, I didn't eat any raw vegetables. I didn't touch them. Um, I stopped eating. It was very interesting. So it's kind of been mm. a wave. Um, I think the second trimester was the most exhilarating from a culinary perspective because, um, I typically don't eat a lot of meat and don't eat a lot of fish. Uh, and I think I had developed a real iron deficiency in my fir- at the beginning of my pregnancy. 
I was just unsettled from all of my regular food routines. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I not I would normally choose the fish and the and the pasta on a menu, and I became the person who was eating steak for two for breakfast. <laughs> um, and so it was really exciting, actually, to to um, kind of erase my all of my food preferences yes. and just kind of expand. Well, I think you went from really cerebral to something really more uh, intuitive and yeah. really paying attention. But you seem to be a person who is pays a lot of attention to uh, food, your, <laughs> to food <laughs> and, and your environment around you. So that really brings us to uh, so many aspects of, of what you're doing. You are the owner or co-owner and co-chef of a restaurant called King uh, on the corner of uh, King Street and 6th Avenue, right, Mm -hmm. in in Manhattan. And it has already gotten so much acclaim. Uh, You're a rising star chef. Um, It was noted in the New York Times in 2017 as a really important restaurant. I read an article in 2018 about King, and I've been wanting to meet you since I read one line that you said, and it was, a menu should read like poetry. Now, you probably don't know this, but I do teach a class at the New School called The Language of Food. And I believe I'm among the first to really talk about menu language as a form of literature. And I uh, speak to and write about the connection between chefs and poets. So when I read that, that, I go, oh my goodness, I cannot wait to meet you and to talk to you about this. Um, tell me a little bit about this idea that a menu should read like a poem. What does that mean to you? Well, I think, um, you know, the menu is one of the first points of contact with the food that a guest experiences when they come into our restaurant. Um, they sit down, they don't know what they're going to eat. They may be able to look around the room and spot some things. But then faced with a menu, it's the menu is where you get to kind of initiate the storytelling, mm. I think. Um, and food is just a collection of ingredients, um, but it's so much more than that. It's about where you're trying to take somebody. Um, are you trying to transport them down an English country lane <laughs> or are you trying to evoke some kind of memory of this Mediterranean summer? I think that it can a menu is where you, it's your thesis statement. Mm. It's whether you get to um, to lead somebody in any direction. Um, And, you know, the food I cook at home is is similar to the food that I cook at King. There's a lot more of an English influence. Um, But when we think about writing the menu at King, we, we, we know what's going to be on the menu in terms of, oh, it's going to be chicken and it's going to be this vegetable and it's going to be that. And how and, do you know that, by the way? Oh, so we, we work with um, lots of small farms and we um, it's, we have a daily changing menu. It changes twice a day, not for the sake of it, um, but just because we work with small farms that can only provide us, say, 10 rabbits each week or mm. 40 quails. Um, so we kind of know what rotation we're going into and that doesn't change. What changes is the vegetables we get from the green market, um, we say we're seasonal, we're hyper-seasonal to the day. Um, so we relate, to, we relate to the weather every day and we kind of think about what we what we crave. Um, and that, I think there's some kind of cosmic connection between us and our customers. And normally if I want a really hearty ribolita, chances are someone else does too. Absolutely. Um, so we try and respond to that. Um, but the menu is that first touch point um, and you get to take someone on a journey and it starts there. And 
you know, you can call it a chickpea fry or you can call it a panelle or you can call it a panisse. Um, and for us, we really want that first thing on the menu to kind of situate you. We've got finocchietta and panisse. We chose the French word for that dish. These are the two things that remain constant on the menu every day. Everything else changes. Um, we wanted to situate, you know, finocchietta. There's like the Italian influence coming into the restaurant and panisse. That's the French side. Okay, um, describe them both. Um, finocchietta is a, 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 a preserved Italian sausage. that's kind of studded with fennel seeds. Um, and panisse or panelle is a, is a, a southern French or Ligurian dish, just chippy flour and water cooked out for a long, a long time, set and then fried. Also known as soca. Also right? known in as nice. soca, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything kind of go, has goes into consideration. Um, and for me, I, I absolutely love to write, um, and I love to put words to flavors and mm. foods and, um, and. It's a really exciting part of my day to connect those two, those two kind of sides of myself. You do it so beautifully. But let's talk about the actual structure of King when you opened. I know you have two fabulous partners. In fact, uh, you know, I was thinking there was a book a long time ago called Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and I renamed you uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pans, the three (laughs) three girls. I think there's just something really sexy about the idea of the three of you uh, doing this together. You each have your role, although you are really co-chef. Yeah. So t- tell me uh, who your partners are, how this came to be. My partners are Annie Shee and Jess Shabolt. Um, Annie and I met, um, she was living in London with someone with, whom I went to college with. I was her roommate. They set us up on a blind date and we agreed <laughs> Um we tell the story differently. I think she convinced me, but she's sure that I convinced her. Anyway, we came out of our first dinner deciding that we were going to open a restaurant in New York. I was trying to move back here to be with my boyfriend um, and she's from New York. Um, So we started a pop-up in London to kind of test the relationship um, and see where it would take us. Uh, And and this was a pop-up restaurant? I mean, pop-up's an exaggeration. This is more like (laughs) we were selling tickets to her co-workers and cooking dinner for them in my mum's kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to aggrandize this falsely. Um, It was cute at best. (laughs) But the food was fantastic. And our menus, I look back at them and I'm like, oh, I really should. I really tried so hard back then. Mm. We should bring some of that back, uh, some some of that effort and that like high stakes cooking. Um, Were they also like poetry when you read them now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, you, you can really see personal development as a cook for the menus that you write. Mm. And the, not just the words that you choose, but the way you combine ingredients. And um, it was also such a privilege in the UK to be working with British ingredients, which are so, so fantastic. Um, That's a big change, right? Once upon yes, a time, that yeah, was yeah, not yeah. necessarily um, the case. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we started doing that. At the time, I was working at the River Cafe in London, and Jess was also in the kitchen, mm. and we were very good friends. Uh, we, when I started, we were both working the Colds Line together. Um, what a privilege to which work was there! A, yeah, yes. a fantastic restaurant, and we bonded very much over the pr- prosciutto and all the other things that we <laughs> kind of nibbled on together. <laughs> um, uh, so I was there for two years, just under two years, and then moved back uh, with Annie to give it a go here we started doing supper clubs um looking for real estate raising money the whole the whole thing um and then I went back to the UK for Christmas um six months before we opened 
and I was having coffee with Jess and she was like, I'm ready for an adventure. I want to, you know, I want to come too. And I was like, great, get on board. And she moved out here in March. Um, and then I think four, four months later, we, we opened the restaurant. So it's been a whirlwind. You know, this is somewhere really between courageous and crazy. <laughs> so I'm sure there are a lot of young yeah. women who are listening to this thinking, oh, my gosh, I can do that. That can happen. Yeah. Um, so exciting. But to backtrack um, into the kitchen of your childhood. So you mentioned you grew up in London until you were four. Then you went to India. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned a grandmother. Who were some of the other women who were in your kitchen and what other flavors and dishes kind of were uh, my of mom that. was a really um keen cook as well um uh she didn't do the cooking when we were in india or dubai um we had uh we had an, an indian an indian cook actually who just made the most wonderful food and that's why we ate our home food was mm. was indian food but then i moved to um i moved to dubai in the middle east um i can't remember how old i was uh but i gra graduated from high school there and um hmm. I mean, the food was spectacular. It's kind of a melting pot of like Lebanese and um, Syrian and all these sort of Middle Eastern cuisines kind of come together there. There's And the indigenous food is heavy on lamb and rice. And mm. um, so that became kind of the next home food. Did basmati rice follow you there too? Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. My love, for, my love for basmati is uh, a little bit excessive. Um and so the food was absolutely fantastic. And all those Middle Eastern flavors that Ottolenghi um, has made so popular in the last decade um, really were part of my upbringing. Um, but throughout, throughout, um, throughout my entire childhood and adolescence, we went back to England every summer and we went to, uh, we went to sort of mainland Europe. So I would spend a month in England um, mm. with, you know, with my grandparents and, you know, that would, that would mean picking the lettuce before lunch and washing the salad leaves with my grandmother and making the dressings and being really involved in the kitchen. Um, and then we would go on family trips, um, a lot to France, a lot to Italy. And that's where I was really exposed to, 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 to those flavors that bring back such wonderful memories um, for me. I think you had the kind of a childhood that we all dream about yeah. and that we're all reading about now and actually trying to recreate so when we come back, we definitely want to hear more about um, you, your restaurant, and I have a little surprise tasting for you. And I hope you're up to the challenge. Definitely. <laughs> Here's a cooking tip to share. This for my guest, Claire DeBoer. You know, I get this question a lot. My sister will call me and she'll be like, what, you know, cooking tip, please. Just taste. <laughs> taste it every step of the way. Um, if your water tastes good, the vegetable you'll put in the water to boil it will taste good. If you taste the vegetable after it comes out of the water, you'll know if it needs a little bit of acid or olive oil. Just taste everything at every step of the way and, like, let your tongue be your guide. Mm. You know more than you think. From Claire's Kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Since the Restaurant King is getting so much attention, um, and I, I think its success has to do with, uh, obviously, the quality of the food, but you've created an atmosphere there that is so approachable, and it feels a little bit like 
being in someone's home. And I believe this really was an intention of yours and your partner's. So uh, you were crazy and courageous. And then what happened? The three of you got together and um, borrowed money. How did you find the location? How did you decide what the thrust of the menu should be? Because you said it was Italian and uh, Southern Italian and French mostly. So how yeah, this- I mean, I, I think that the creative direction of the restaurant wasn't something that we like sat around a table and thought up. It was in the bones. The reason why we opened it was because we had this vision that didn't exist and we wanted to put it out there. Um, you know, Annie had a perspective on hospitality. Um, I had the food that I cooked and, you know, Jess, Jess had a very similar style. Um, so that was all that all came very naturally. Um, in terms of um, raising the money, that was, I think, the biggest challenge. Mm. Um that anyone who's sort of untested and unproven, I think, will come up against. Um, we were still raising money three months into having opened the restaurant. And we mm-hmm. there were several points during the whole process where we run out, ran out of money, had, took Hail Mary loans. Um, <laughs> but it was a real challenge to convince people who had never even tasted our food before um, and had no reason to believe to, to fork over money um, into the most notorious industry (laughs) when it comes to making money and 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 so we were very lucky to find some some generous believers um but you know when we started the process i didn't know a single one of our investors the only rule that we had was no money from family or friends Mm -hmm. um and that was something that we managed to stick to um i think the risk of opening a restaurant is so huge uh we couldn't have stomached that if there was also the risk of losing family or friends exactly money um (laughs) so it was yeah it was it was really a process it was about finding one person who could then introduce us to a couple more and um that that journey to raise the money started you know with a google search um and really this is very different than it used to be in the old days when i was involved in creating restaurants because i think you did everything people would advise never to do (laughs) so are you surprised how successful uh, it has become and how much attention it's gotten already? Um, yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, it's hard. It's a complicated question because when you're, you know, when I was in the period of fantasizing about this restaurant um, and imagining everything it could be, I never, I imagined the food and I imagined the space. I never, uh, you don't think about the accolades and all that stuff. And it really mm-hmm. doesn't matter I mean, it matters from a business perspective and it, it's so wonderful for people to recognize um, and appreciate what we have created. Um, but I think the joy of creating it is so separate from the recognition you receive. Um, so definitely did not expect it to go this well. Um, and I'm just so delighted that people have responded to it and it struck a chord um, with people well, people must have felt the people who did invest must have felt the joy and the passion. Yeah, and the I think I think that anybody that invests in a restaurant really inv- is investing in the people, um, and we have some wonderful investors, and we, you know, one of them has been to the restaurant over a hundred and forty times. <laughs> <laughs> And and we met him when we pitched him. We met uh, we met at Le Pain Quotidien for the very first time, and he ran there. He came in all sweaty. He sat down. Five minutes later, we said, "Hey, this is our you know this is the idea." He's like, "Great, I'm in." And we were like, "Wow." Well, Clara, actually, <laughs> do you feel is he your your muse? Do you feel in a way that you're cooking for him when you create these menus that he's almost become symbolic of um, your ultimate customer or someone who really I believes in you? I I, I think. 
I think, yeah, this particular gentleman is just <laughs> outstanding. Uh, he's a very, uh, a very, a very talented cook himself. Um, but I think that we really wanted to create somewhere where that you could go and eat in every day. Mm. Um, you know, we do have people that come for lunch five days a week. Um, and it's that feeling of simple food and a warmth um, in the dining room. We're not trying to... We're not trying to push our agenda. We're just trying to make tasty food that right. people want to eat regularly. So. I think one critic called it uh, the musty feel of sophisticated home cooking. That is Emily, Did you like that that? Is Emily Weinstein <laughs> <laughs> from last week. Um, uh, yeah, I had to Google what that meant. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you got a beautiful two-star review. I'm wondering, um, were there things that were not mentioned in that review that you would have liked i know that pete wells no i i uh before the restaurant before we opened the restaurant um i went through the exercise of writing a review myself what i would like to be said is that right um yeah i reviewed the restaurant and i i you know what pete wells wrote really wasn't that dissimilar from what i did claire that's remarkable um i mean every restaurateur should do that yeah i think I mean, it's a, a, such a reflective, beautiful exercise. I think it's very important to have intentionality about where you're going and what you want to create. And if you know exactly how you want people to feel in your space and mm. and taste when they eat the food, then you can be very clear-minded in, in, in getting there. I'm really wowed by that. Okay, let's talk about your partners. And again, uh, you know, the sisterhood of the traveling pans that I've now named you. Um, and it also reminds me a little bit about the uh, triptych of uh, Julia Child, Simone Beck, and Louise Bertold, right? They were <laughs> they were partners, uh, a threesome for many, many years. So um, tell me what that's like. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I think especially, especially now going into this new phase of my life, it's really... Um, it's really wonderful knowing that the restaurant is going to be in good hands when I step away for for maternity leave. Um, but but I think I think having partners in a restaurant is a very is a balancing act. Um, you know we don't agree on everything, um, but any disagreements are usually productive because you get to see multiple sides of the same coin. Mm. Um, and for the most part, I think being being three rather than one or even a two meant that for the hardest times um we had you know we had more manpower um and we had each other as a support system um and most restaurants fail in their first couple of years and i you know i'm sure that's running out of money i'm sure that's not being able to make ends meet but i but i also imagine it's because the emotional journey is grueling um Mm. you know i was in a privileged position to have two friends um kind of going through that journey with me and if one of us was strong it allowed another one of us to question things and that kind of merry-go-round of like doubt and hope uh, was something that we all shared and Mm. at no point was were all of us in the dumps um (laughs) so it it allowed it allowed it allowed us to kind of experience fully the 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 breadth of emotions that go with um 
this yes. journey. You really are a poet. This uh, merry-go-round of doubt and hope is <laughs> really very beautiful. Um, so what do people love to eat there? What are some of the most popular dishes? Um, everyone, I know you change it every yeah, day. Yeah. It's, you know, everyone, obviously, the pasta is always the top seller, but that's that. That's no surprise. A particular no. Well, we we the menu changes every day. We always have a pasta on the menu. Oh. Um, that tends to be very popular, and um, we we uh, we saved up for an ice cream machine for three years <laughs> and bought ourselves one this summer. And it's kind of a Rolls Royce. Um, Is it the Paco Jet? No, it's the Carpajani. Mm. So we 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 were saving for it, and we. Uh, ended up getting a secondhand one, great value. Um, so we were super excited to launch our ice cream this summer. And that has been remarkable. Do you mind if I tell you that I had the very best ice cream of my life at King the other oh, day? Oh, I'm so glad to hear. <laughs> <laughs> But tell me about this, because I really do want to talk a little bit about your process and your kind of brilliance and genius at uh, creating flavors and dishes. But Claire, the ice cream was called Pan Perdu Pan ice cream. Pan yeah. It was French toast ice cream. Tell yeah. me about that. Well, that, <laughs> idea, that idea I had, um, it's actually, you know, we, this is where we call, this is where, you, you know, creative license when it comes to naming things. Um, brown bread ice cream is one of my favorite flavors. And it was something that I had for the first time in Ireland. Um, and where and you went cooking school there. I went there. to cooking school mm-hmm. there. My, my, my mum and sister were visiting one weekend and they stayed in um, uh, a B&B near the cooking school called Bally Villain. Not Bally Villain, Bally Villain. And uh, we had dinner there each night and there was a set, there was like, they just served you what they had. And every night we were there, <laughs> they served us brown bread ice cream because that was what they had. And it was... Had you ever heard of it before? Never heard of it before. Me too. Mind blowing. <laughs> And so before we did, before we even got the ice cream machine, we had, um, we did semi-fredos on the menu so we could avoid the whole churning thing. And I got into doing brown bread ice cream, but that didn't quite fit the, you know, the, 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 the poetry of the whole thing. So it became pan perdu. <laughs> um, oh. And yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful flavor. It tastes like almost like cinnamon toast crunch. It does. Um, to Americans, to me, it tastes like... Irish brown bread ice cream almost. (laughs) It was so good, as was the whole meal. I also had a cake of yours, which I'm wondering, is is it a secret, this recipe? Because, uh, boy, is it one I would love to have, but it is for the uh, rosemary and olive oil. So that's not a secret, actually. Um, It's not a secret. I, that... The the texture was so fascinating. Yeah, the texture's amazing, and that's because there's no flour. It's actually, we use breadcrumbs, blitzed up breadcrumbs. Um, but I think there are, you know, a couple of things that are really important about this, about the recipe that don't relate to the recipe. So that recipe came from my mum. Um, she made it for a dinner party in England. She picked up a Diana Henry recipe book and she made that and she emailed me and she was like, this is the best cake. You've absolutely got to make it. (laughs) Um, and you know what mom says I do sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. when it relates to a recipe. She's got excellent, an excellent nose for sussing out. A keen cook. Yeah. For sussing out what a good, a good and a bad recipe. So she sent, sent over the recipe. We made it and made a few changes and it's become an absolute king classic. Um, but it's not ours. We didn't invent it. Mm-hmm. My mum emailed it to me from a recipe book, you know, from from Diana Henry, who's a phenomenal, yes. who's a phenomenal, um, you know, writer and cook. Um, and I'm proud of that. I'm not. I'd, I'm not concerned that we didn't kind of invent it. Right. I think 
there is that invention is not really the point for me in the kitchen. Mm. Um, I think it's just making delicious food um, and sort of heritage and the passing around of recipes is so key to that, like learning from other people. Um, and I love that idea. I Karen. very often pick up D- Diana, <laughs> Diana Henry's books and leaf through them and think, oh, roast chicken with marigolds. I want to make that too. Me too. Olive oil and rosemary cake. I would love to make that and, you know, poach peaches with this. What is new and what is not new? I mean, these are all very doesn't even matter does it um i think it's really important to credit someone if you know where the idea came from um and i thank diana henry every day that we serve that at king because <laughs> it is that good but That's i think so that wonderful. but the, the the technique of using breadcrumbs and cakes is 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 one that i really love um you get such a moist um, mouthfeel. And I know Claudia Roden does it a lot with in her, her, her famous orange and almond cake where yes. she boils and blitzes two whole oranges. Um, but it makes the cakes last for a very long time, um, makes them super moist without being buttery. Um, so I'm a big fan of that method. I loved it. Thank you. <laughs> so speaking of great flavors and tastes, I'm a little bit curious, or actually I'm very curious, about your uh, creative process and how you think about food and flavors. So Claire, I've never done this before, but I actually brought a couple of crazy things for you to uh, take a deep smell, a big whiff of, and tell me what you might create out of this what Mm. in other ingredients might come to mind or how you would create a dish because in essence I think this is really what you do do so um there's a jar there I'm not going to tell you what it is lemon verbena you knew right away (laughs) (laughs) well this is incredibly familiar this is how I end most of my days Ah. uh, with a pot of this um but I it's kind of new to me yeah (laughs) I mean lemon verbena I just think I was in Provence earlier this summer and it's kind of it's almost the smell of the wildness there mm. um and uh my family always goes to this place in in the Luberon mountains um and this is grow this grows all over the all over the hillside in the house that we rent and one of the things that i i love to do with it is make custard um mm. and serve that with poached peaches so very oh. very delicate um i like it chilled um, a chilled lemon verbena custard with um, poached peaches in the summer. Um, those are the flavors that kind of really remind me of 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 summer holidays. That sounds amazing. And yeah. do you steep the lemon verbena in in milk first? Uh, the, yeah, yes. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In 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 the in the milk and cream before before adding the eggs and making the custard. It sounds delicious, but that wasn't a challenge at all. Let's no. try something. <laughs> it else. might get more difficult. Now. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. This. Oh, you can open that one. Um, but I believe this may be familiar to you too. Now Mustard that I... oil. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this is a new ingredient and very few chefs are using this. Yeah. So with, yes, it is mustard oil. Does some dish come to mind right I away? mean, I would, u- I would, would u- use I would use mustard oil as a replacement for vegetable oil in the base of a lot of Indian food because mm-hmm. your, your, the mustard seed is such a common ingredient in starting and also finishing um, a lot of a lot of dishes like the mustard oil would be lovely on on taka dal yellow dal at the end of it um it'd be lovely. just to drizzle it yeah, on yeah or like throw lentils. some cur- throw some um little curry leaves in there warm it up uh with some cumin or some coriander seeds and and throw that on um at the end sounds wonderful 
I'm just learning how to use it. I uh, made uh, some seared tuna the other day, and I drizzled a little of the mustard oil on it, some coarse salt and capers. Oh, and that, you know, three ingredients, and it was very simple. Okay, let's try the one in the little package. This um, well, we can also do that, but the, there's... This one a, looks very... I mean, this has... Yes, this try is, that. This is the Zatar. So of this course. is the flavor. This is my after-school <laughs> snack when I grew up um, uh, in Dubai after, like, you know, before going to soccer practice or after dance class or something. <laughs> I would have uh, manoush, which is kind of... Which is a bread with this and olive oil all over it, almost done like a pizza in the oven, folded in half. And it was called manouche? Yeah, and I like to, um, I make it at home sometimes um, and I put an egg in the middle and I'll have it for breakfast. But that's, that combination of the dried thyme and the sesame seeds um, is very, very lovely, nice and acidic um, and really herbaceous. Very earthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So za'atar. Um, like a pita with yeah. uh, olive oil and then this beautiful idea of adding an egg to it. That sounds wonderful. Um, you know, this is so funny that I should pick these ingredients. It feels like a, the story of your life. Yeah. <laughs> How I'm did curious I know what's next. Maybe this is going to be this uh, one illuminating. Is, this is definitely the outlier because I didn't know this ingredient either. Someone just brought it to me. So open the little package. This one, mm-hmm. one. Uh, Yeah. That one. Is that jaggery or some kind of sweet... So jaggery, for those who don't know, is uh, like a, a brown sugar. Oh, aged balsamic sea salt. <laughs> oh, well, it smells very sweet. I guess that's the, the vinegar. Um, smells just like jaggery. Um, is jaggery just like brown sugar? Or yeah, does it also it's, it's have- kind of totally unrefined. Um, it's used a lot in Indian Indian sweets, but it comes in a block. It's kind of like a pale toffee color. Um and I love to grate it mm. um, over porridge or whatever. Um, but balsamic salt, um, I'm a purist when it comes to salt. Right. Strictly use Essex finest Malden. Um, but I mean, this would, this is, I guess, asking to be put on a tomato. Yeah, um, it really is, isn't it? I just, <laughs> or maybe even on, on a piece of melon. I'm thinking if there was a really super ripe piece of. Yeah, I mean, anything that you'd put salt and put some balsamic vinegar on, I think this would be friends with. But it does kind of make your mouth water. And we just have one more, um, which is really indescribable. So I'm curious to hear where you'll go with this. Is it called dream dust? Yeah, it smells like cinnamon. Maybe a little bit of chocolate, cocoa powder. It's made Mexican hot chocolate mix. <laughs> mm-hmm. With some ca- um, cardamom and chili. Yeah. What might you do with that? I would probably make hot chocolate with it. <laughs> I'd whisk that into some... Um, what about an ice cream with your new ice cream maker? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, it smells very lovely. It's it's definitely feels like fall is coming. Yes. Um, you know what came to me when I smelled it this morning? Because I think, you know, different times of day and your mood and what you just had or didn't eat or drink can really influence, you know, these creative ideas. Um, duck. Duck and cherries came to mind with that. You know, a tiny little bit of that maybe in a demi glace or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with some basmati I'll rice. Some, I'll have some of that. <laughs> I'll have that too. But I want you to make it for me. Um, so... Thank you, Claire. That was fun. I think you should do it again. Coming up next, Claire will share some of her ideas for her upcoming menu and uh, maybe share with us what's really meaningful to her right now.
follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Claire, I know you're about to have a child. Very exciting. Uh, did the restaurant feel like your first child in a way? You know, everyone says when they're opening a restaurant that it's like having a baby. Uh, I think I was guilty of that too. <laughs> and I had some I had some of my my friends, male chefs that have also opened their own places, text me and be like, come back to me on that. Um, so, I mean, so far, there's a lot of similarities, long gestation, exhausting, <laughs> uh, painful ups and downs, also filled with kind of hope for the future. Um, Beautiful. I think that I will have a very different answer to this question in a couple of weeks time when my baby arrives. <laughs> um, but one thing I'm sure of is that the the joy of having a child will be unlike anything you can experience opening a restaurant mm, yes i'm um, sure that's true <laughs> so i doubt i'll be comparing the two in a couple of weeks um but at the moment it's sure <laughs> long <laughs> exhausting um and you know and full of optimism and, and hope. full of optimism and hope yeah so um uh, you'll be taking a little bit of a maternity leave but um how will the menu continue to kind of uh, be manifest really when, yeah, when you're as gone. usual you know we've spent we've spent three years now training a fantastic team and do you have um, mostly women in the kitchen it seemed to yeah, be the day i was there women in the kitchen oh, that's my. not by design it's just by so they 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 chose us ah, I like <laughs> um, that. but our sous chef has been with us i went to college with her actually um and so i've known her for wow maybe eight years She's she signed up for the project a year before we opened, mm. um, and her name is Sadie, and she's she has been our sous chef, and she's becoming um, CDC, um, and she what what is CDC uh, chef de cuisine? Yes, thank you. Um, and so she's she's you know absolutely remarkable, and I adore her, and she's an incredibly talented cook. Um, you know, so it's it's really wonderful to have an amazing an amazing cast of characters around you, um, and such a strong support system. So going into maternity leave, I have not you know no fear that the menu is going to continue to, to to you know be delicious. And do you want to have any involvement at, at all, or do you really want to take this kind of emotional and psychological and physical I break? I don't know what I want yet. I'll okay, I love that. <laughs> and and you're you get to choose. Yeah, so that's yeah, really yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Um, it's the secret of life. We really all get to choose. So tell me, in addition to having a child, what, what is important to you now? I mean, I'm thinking, is there a cookbook in the works? Yeah, there... I, well, I think life has completely, my perspective on everything has obviously changed. And that kind of happened instantly. And maybe it's hormonal, maybe it, your priorities shift. Um, a year ago, I bought um, my first house with my husband. Mm. Um, and that's really become the center of my life. Um cooking there uh on the weekends i've this is upstate yeah yeah um and all the all you know all the wonderful memories that i created growing up around the dinner table i'm now trying to recreate there and forge new ones and i think the the kitchen there is really the center of our lives and you know i may be in the restaurant kitchen five days a week but i go up there and feel exhilaration and liberation to be in my mm. kitchen and I've planted a garden um and it's this 
it's just this beautiful thing to be connected to the garden. Um, and in New York City, we have the farmer's market, we get our produce delivered, and it's all amazing. But it's so different to develop an appreciation for something from the seed stage to the point where you're eating it. Um, and it's kind of inspired a much more nose to tail approach to my cooking uh, when it comes to vegetables. I'm not, I'm not rearing any meat yet. Um, but I think that my future involves a lot more of my home kitchen. Um, mm. hopefully a lot more writing about it. I've, I, for the past year, I've kept a diary of everything that I've cooked on the weekends and that's ended oh. up, that ended up going into print at the New York times. Yes. Um, but that's very much what I, I spent my weekends cooking and writing about it. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do a lot more of that, um, after my baby arrives. That sounds really dreamy. And are you someone who sits up at night and reads cookbooks in bed? Oh my God, totally. <laughs> <laughs> While you're eating bonbons? Yeah, no, yeah. My doing? husband's like, can you pick up a, like, can you read a real book? Like, can you, can, <laughs> wait, just read it. You read, you know. Um, yeah, I've got a cookbook addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a absolutely incredible um, uh, secondhand book place in Kent which is this town 15 minutes away from me upstate um and uh for three months every summer they have a constant book thing and I have picked up the most incredible boxes and boxes and boxes of cookbooks they're all two dollars um <laughs> they're mostly out of print um yeah. and you know I go I, I I'll fall in love with some kind of writer or photographer and go on eBay looking for more of the same and they'll the, you know something will be on sale for a hundred bucks and I got it for two so there's, <laughs> we've been we've been spending a lot of time at the book sale the book sale in Kent um and I do spend an over overwhelming amount of time reading them I've actually got what I've got in my I'm currently reading An Everlasting Meal um, oh, Tamar Adler by Tamar Adler I got this at the book sale last week I can't believe anyone would put it up for put it up for sale but I'm delighted to have picked up a copy um, and I read the first chapter uh, a couple of days ago and I went straight to the farmer's market got a load of vegetables and then boiled them because her first chapter is on boiling vegetables so you know it's a testament to what a good bit of food writing can do um, so wonderful and so, yeah, it's been, yeah, all I read is cookbooks. <laughs> Claire, so you mentioned writing and you are a beautiful writer. I just enjoyed the piece in the New York Times so much. Um, what else do you have in mind in terms of, of writing? Well, everyone's asking me this question. <laughs> of course. Um, I, you know, I think that we're going to write a King cookbook. I think in parallel, um, I so enjoyed the process of working with the New York Times and I had um Emily Weinstein was editing me and I don't know if you've met her, but she is just fantastic. She'll take your writing from like zero to hero, just like that. Um, And it felt like I was in school again, getting my papers marked up, (laughs) except the teacher was someone who I have such an ordinate respect for. Mm. Um, So it was so enlightening to see the, to to, to work with her. Um, And that's something that I would really love to do more of. Um, I'm, you know, any opportunity I think to, to publish, um, to publish food writing is, is something that I'm going to look for, especially having a kid. Um, because you'll be up all night. Because I'll be up write. all night. Exactly. <laughs> I've got fantasies about, yeah, fantasies about the, the book that I'll write while I'm nursing. It's probably the only thing you can do at the same time. Mm. So I think, I think uh, my immediate future hopefully includes a lot more of that. And you mentioned Diana Kennedy. Are there other um, writers or women or men um, whose work you really love? Oh, so many. Um, I'm a huge fan. 
um, I think my my favorite my favorite food writers are um, Nigella Lawson and Nigel Slater, mm. the two Nigels. Yes, um, and I love their work too. I love their work, and also Samin Nosrat. I think she's a wonderful voice to come up. But I love um, I love Nigel and Nigella for their voices. Totally different voices, but both so personal. I think, mm. you know, Ni- Ni- uh, Nigel Slater really is so evocative of time and place. Yes. Um, and his vocabulary just draws you straight into his garden and his kitchen. And you can, you feel like you're there. You can feel the mist. You can feel, you know, the the cheese. He, he just, he's so, he's so evocative. And Nigella Lawson, completely different than him. I love her because she's so matter of fact. Um, she's very opinionated and um, she's personal um, and also practical. Simin Nosra. I think is her work is just beyond. She wrote the cookbook that ends all cookbooks. I don't know if we need any more after she was it this uh, <laughs> salt, salt, fat, acid, heat. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think she accomplished brilliantly um, what every what every cook has probably wanted to do ever, um, which is provide those fundamentals. Um, that allow you to be flexible and improvise in the kitchen. Mm. And I have no doubt you'll be finding your own voice. And that's such a big change in cookbook writing. Once upon a time, it really was about the recipe. Yeah. And it was about the user. And today, I think it's really um, about the artist and the person who's creating the book and and their voice. And that's what we want, because we can all go to the internet now and just find a recipe. Yeah. So in a cookbook, I believe we're looking for for so much more. Yeah. Yeah, to have that person really right I, that's there why with I us. Read, that's why I read cookbooks. Wonderful. Uh, do you think at some point in time on the King menu, you will have um, influences from Dubai or India? I don't think so. Um, okay, good. I think, <laughs> For you. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, that, you know, I, I, I write the menu with Jess and with Sadie, who's our new CDC, and we very much fo- kind of follow in a vein of our shared experience which is this kind of Mediterranean perspective and at at home all these other flavors from my from my background kind of come into my cooking um uh you know we, we were on David Chang's podcast and he said the same thing I was talking about I was actually talking about my love for Szechuan cooking and he was like why don't you start innovating <laughs> um and I think you know if and when it'll be in another restaurant or in a in a home cookbook. Um, I really respect that. Yeah, because I think there's almost too much of that happening now, where yeah. there's a lot of um, um, you know anarchy <laughs> on restaurant menus in some ways. Yeah, uh, it all so... needs to sit together and really um, be a cohesive a cohesive menu. And I think that sticking to the Mediterranean, you know, you can head over, that includes, you can head, head, head east a little bit, but if you're sticking to the Mediterranean. There's lots of room for creativity in that um, palette as well. Clara, do you have a legacy recipe you can share with us? Uh, Well, it's not a legacy yet. I hope it will become (laughs) one. (laughs) Um, I, I shouldn't, I, talk about it too too much because it might not happen I don't want to jinx anything but mm. I'm hoping to publish one of my uh one of my uh, personal home home recipes that I that the family requests the most often and um, that is I think one of the 
one of my more delicious, the more delicious ideas that I have had. Um, and it's um, a whole chicken roasted in a loaf of bread. Uh, and it is, it is, I think represents a lot of what I love most in food, which is mm. simplicity, but also the alchemy that happens when you combine basic things. And um, it also represents family family cooking it's not something you can serve in a restaurant very very well because you've got to put the chicken in the bread dough bake it It takes you know an hour and a half two hours um but then it's something to be eaten together it's one one dish that comes to the table and everyone kind of tears it open with their hands makes a mess and breaks bread um so there's the messy feel of sophisticated home cooking right there There, going back to the quote and you know it also reminds me of Claire. i mean i'm so into metaphor uh, and clearly, so are you reading your menus. But this whole idea of a chicken baked in a bread, of course, is also very symbolic of, of, of a pregnancy and being pregnant and this oh, kind right. of feeling. I didn't really, catch that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, so thank you for that. And in closing, even though I hate to end this conversation with you, I truly do. Uh, this is a question I ask all my guests. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? I was thinking about that before I came in and I I don't feel like a one woman kitchen I feel like a hundred woman kitchen mm. um not in in a literal sense you know with my partnership with Jess and with Annie and with Sadie at the at King you know but even aside from that when I'm standing alone in my kitchen at home I am in that space and holding that space with like the memories and teachings of a hundred women and my mother, my grandmother, and all the fantastic women that I read, um, I definitely never feel alone at the stove. Mm, so beautiful. And pretty soon you're going to have a little one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing about that too. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you, Claire. And thank you for joining me and Claire in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.